Welcome to The Common Rounds. Medical education for medical students by medical students. My name is Hamid and in today's episode we'll be discussing ischemic stroke. So what is ischemic stroke? It's defined as a vascular syndrome associated with rapid onset of cerebral deficit and it can be broadly divided into two categories. Ischemic, which accounts for 80% of strokes, so that's where you get a sudden blockage of blood flow to the affected area of the brain, leading to reduced oxygenation and neuronal death. It can be further divided into several causes such as thrombotic causes, cardioembolic causes, hyperperfusion and venous thrombi. Another cause of stroke which we'll talk about in a future episode is hemorrhagic stroke which accounts for 20% of stroke cases and is associated with sudden blood loss resulting in reduced oxygenation to various parts of the brain and thereby um, ischemia and neuronal death. Now before we talk about the pathogenesis of stroke it's important to discuss very briefly the anatomy of the vasculature. So internal carotid is an important um, source of blood supply to the brain and it arises from the common carotid artery and the continuation of the internal carotid is the middle cerebral artery. Vertebral artery arises from the subclavian artery and that unites to form the basilla artery. Branches of the vertebral artery supply the medulla and most of the inferior surface of the cerebellum. As I've mentioned already, the basilla artery which arises from the vertebral artery ascends the midline of the ventral pons, supplies a lot of the pontine structures and also supplies the superior portion of the cerebellum. Other key uh, blood vessels to be familiar with is the anterior cerebellar artery, which supplies the majority of the frontal lobe's central aspects, the middle cerebral artery, which I've already alluded to, that supplies lateral aspects as well as the parietal and the frontal lobe, as well as parts of the temporal, the superior aspects of the temporal lobe. And finally, the posterior cere uh, cerebellar artery, which supplies a key portion of the occipital lobe and the inferior aspects of the temporal lobe. And as you can imagine, blockage in different parts of the cerebral arteries and, and the key arteries can lead to manifestations of different symptoms because these arteries supply different aspects of the brain. Another key rule to bear in mind when it comes to stroke, in fact any stroke is the 4x4 rule which I've come across uh, in my readings and this was originally cited by um, P. Gates and you can find the paper titled the rule of fours of the brainstem. It's relatively straightforward but there are some key um, aspects to uh, bear in mind. So the 4x4 rule is really divided into a couple of components. So there are four structures in the midline, beginning with M, that's the motor pathway, so the corticospinal tract, the medial lamiscus, which is important for vibration and sensory information, the medial longitudinal fasciculus, which is important for eye movement, and the motor nucleus associated with cranial nerves 3, 4, 6, and 12. There are also four lateral structures starting with S, and that's the spinocerebellar pathways, which carries information from the periphery into the cerebellum, so important for balance and movement. Spinothalamic pathway, which conveys pain information to the, um, to the thalamus and to the brain. The sensory nuclei of trigeminal 4 is also another lateral structure, and the sympathet sympathetic pathway is a lateral structure as well. Finally, there are also some cranial nerves that you need to be familiar with that abide by the 4x4 rule. So the medulla has four cranial nerves, broadly speaking. That's 9, 10, 11, and 12. Pons also has four cranial nerves, so that's 5, 6, 7, and 8. And above uh, pons in the brain, there are also four cranial nerves. So cranial nerve 1, 2, 3, and 4. And the reason the 4x4 rule is really powerful is that if you have a medullary or a brainstem infarct, if you apply the 4x4 rule, then you can really sort of make an educated guess about the potential symptoms that the patients will present with. So for example, if a 
a patient has had a lateral medullary stroke, then we know that there are four lateral structures starting with S that I've already alluded to. So spinal cerebellar, spinal thalamic, the sensory nucleus of trigeminal nerve, as well as sympathetic pathway. So you can already sort of appreciate the symptoms that these patients can manifest. Now, moving on to the pathogenesis, as I've already mentioned, ischemic stroke is predominantly due to atherosclerosis, which ultimately impacts on the blood flow to the brain and the regions supplied by the, the arteries affected. Often, it's due to rupturing of plaques leading to thrombosis and downstream emboli, which brings about the occlusion. And this can be divided into two types of manifestations, large artery disease, which is as you can imagine, stenosis and occlusion of the internal carotid, vertebral arteries, and other intracranial arteries that I've alluded to, such as the middle cerebral artery, posterior cerebral artery, as well as the anterior cerebral artery. There can also be small vessel disease or lacuna disease, and that's brought about by high, um, highline arteriosclerosis, where there's increased deposition of proteins in the arterioles, which brings about narrowing of those arterioles in addition to atherosclerosis. And that can be accelerated by conditions like diabetes mellitus and hypertension, which force these proteins into the vessels um, into the vessel wall so other causes already alluded to are cardioembolic so if the heart is the source of the emboli as opposed to arteries within the brain that can be due to atrial fibrillation can be due to valvular disorders prosthetic valves as well um, as well as um, a patent form uh, from an ovale where the passage of the deep vein thrombosis can go from the right atrium to the left and then into the systemic circulation which obviously includes the brain Systemic um, hyperperfusion could be another cause where there's inadequate blood flow to the brain due to heart dysfunction, and that can bring about ischemia and neuronal death. And a very rare cause to bear in mind, which accounts for 1% of the cases, is venous thrombi, where thrombosis of the intracranial sinus, which is important for drainage of the arterial blood from um, the arterial system into the venous system in the brain, um, can uh be blocked and that can lead to again ischemia and insufficient outflow from um, from the cranium. So what are the signs and symptoms? As you can imagine, because of the complex vasculature of the brain, the signs and symptoms can be quite broad. Now the clinical manifestation depends on the arteries affected. So that can be, for example, if it's the anterior cerebral artery, you, patients can present with possible contralateral leg sensory loss and um, paralysis and that really reflects where the artery and the region of the primary motor cortex and the sensory cortex at the anterior cerebral artery supplies. Another example would be the median cerebral artery um, flow issues and that you know can possibly manifest in contralateral sensory loss and paralysis of the arm and face which again reflects the area of the primary cortex supplied by the median uh, cerebral artery or the middle cerebral artery. Visual loss is another important component that you might expect to see because, as I mentioned, part of the parietal lobe is supplied by the uh, middle cerebral artery and thus the Myers loop of the optic radiation which travels through the um, parietal lobe can be affected and so patients can present with visual loss. Conversely, they can also present with expressive dysphagia because the Broca's area involved with um, motor movements associated with speech can be affected. Posterior cerebral artery can be associated with visual loss because the posterior cerebral artery supplies the occipital lobe. It can also associate with cranial nerve and cranial, um, uh, particularly cranial nerve three and four palsy, and so patients can have difficulty moving their eyes. Basilar artery can lead to a terrible syndrome called the locked-in syndrome because a lot of the key neuronal pathways that go out into the periphery, as well as some of the key cranial nerves, arise from or are located within the 
upon. And so if um, this region is affected and if there's infarction in this region, a lot of the outflow and inflow of information to the brain can be impacted. Occasionally, the eyes can be spared, so these patients can communicate by moving their eyes. Um, but oh, and as you can imagine, this is a very terrible type of stroke to, um, for patients to, to experience. If the posterior inferior cerebral artery is affected, patients can present with Wallenberg syndrome, where the lateral part of the brainstem is affected. And if you go back to the 4x4 rule, then you can sort of guess what these manifestations would be. So there would be the four types of lateral structures that would be affected in the brain, as I've alluded to already. Anterior spinal artery can be affected and that can lead to a medial medullary infarct of the brainstem. So that can, that can refer to the 4x4 rule pertaining to the, um, the four middle structures that can be located in the brainstem. Now moving on to diagnosis. Diagnosis is predominantly on, based on clinical findings, which is then supported by several investigations, which I'll talk about shortly. Some differential diagnoses to consider include syncope, seizures, transient ischemic attack, particularly if the symptoms rapidly resolve, hemorrhagic stroke, migraines, tumors, CNS infections such as meningitis and hypoglycemia. A number of investigations can help guide our decision about whether the patient's having a stroke. And our key goal is to see whether this is a ischemic stroke or a hemorrhagic stroke. So let's start with the blood work first. From a blood work point of view, blood glucose to rule out possible causes of hypoglycemia, coagulation studies, which might be important to see whether this is a hemorrhagic stroke. For example, if patients are on warfarin, then coagulation studies can, can tell us if you know, a patient has an excessively high INR. This could possibly be a hemorrhagic cause. Lipid profile and understanding that is important, but that's not an urgent um, investigation to perform. That might be more important later down the track, particularly for management of atherosclerosis. Imaging is very important. So CT imaging is vital to, uh, because it ena enables us to observe whether this patient is having a hemorrhagic stroke, because that will show up relatively quickly, or whether they're having this mass effect, um, which can br bring about the neurological symptoms. MRI is really good. It has greater sensitivity than CT for ischemia and infarction. But having said that, because of the time it takes to perform an MRI and because of access and or possibly limited access in various facilities, CT is the preferred choice because it's rapid, it's quick, and we can get some really useful answers very, very early in, in patient presentation. Other investigations to keep in mind would be things like ECG because we want to potentially consider cardiac causes. So AF, for example. When it comes to treatment, treatments can be divided into immediate intervention and long-term management. So from an immediate intervention, thrombolysis is really important with um, recombinant tissue plasminogen activators such as um, tenactoplase, and that can be administered within four and a half hours of patient presenting to the hospital. There are a number of um, uh, contraindications, particularly as it pertains to hemorrhagic complications and hemorrhagic risks. If patients aren't provided with tissue plasminogen activators, antiplatelet agents such as aspirin can be a um, administered. Anticoagulation can be considered, such as heparin, in patients with arterial fibrillation and where these tissue plasminogen activators are not available or have not been administered. Once the patient's been stabilized, then we can start thinking about long-term management aspects. So the use of antiplatelets, such as aspirin, aspirin plus dipyrimidal or clopidogrel. The combination of aspirin and clopidogrel is not normally recommended because of the increased risk of hemorrhagic stroke. And the reason we tend to use these antiplatelets is to prevent further emboli and further the occlusion in the um, in the in the future, so as part of a secondary prevention strategy. 
anticoagulants can be considered for patients with AF with valve replacement. And the reason for, for that is to minimize, again, those cardiac sources of emboli, which can go into the brain and cause occlusion. So if we give our warfarin to patients, the INR range that we tend to expect is between two to three. Patients who are not candidates for anticoagulation, aspirin would be another option to consider. Management of hypertension is very important because as I've mentioned, um, hypertension can be a really important cause of um, lacuna uh, infarcts. It can also accelerate the pro process of atherosclerosis and thereby the use of um, uh, ACE inhibitors and thiazides as part of hypertension is recommended. And the goal of antihypertensive therapy is between 120 to 130 millimeters of mercury for the systolic blood pressure. Lipid management is important with the use of statins and that's to minimize um, the progression and halt the ongoing um, atherosclerosis that could be taking place. It should be import, uh, important to bear in mind that the use of statins has been associated with a slight increase in the risk of hemorrhagic stroke, but that needs to be weighed with progression of atherosclerosis and uh, likelihood of ischemic events in the future. Management of diabetes is important, and, and the general goal of therapy is a HbA1c of less than 7%. And other factors such as smoke cessation, which will uh, obviously improve ischemic profile and also slow the progression of atherosclerosis is vital. Increased physical activity and weight loss for lipid control and management of diabetes uh, is very important. And ongoing rehabilitation with the use of occupational therapists, physiotherapists, and speech therapists is important because these patients can have residual symptoms following their stroke and an ongoing rehabilitation may be necessary. This brings our presentation to an end. Thank you for tuning in. If you have any questions, comments, or would like to get in contact with us, um, visit our website, our Facebook page, as well as Twitter and YouTube. Our episode today was put together by our executive producer, Gautam, and our co-editor, Cindy. For notes, elective experiences, and much more study resources, visit our website on thecommonrounds.wordpress.com or visit us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. If you like our episodes, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. It means a lot to us. You've been listening to The Common Rounds. I'm Hamid. And I'm Andy. And we'll see you next time. See you next time.